Welcome to Happy to Be Here, a podcast where I talk to really interesting people about wellness habits, books, and so much more. All things that can hopefully help you be nicer to yourself in whatever stage of life you're in. This week, I'm talking to therapist and author Megan Reardon Jarvis. Megan's first book, End of the Hour, is her memoir and a retelling of her own experience with grief. We talk about some tips for navigating grief, whether it's new to you or not, how to support yourself during the holiday season, and so much more. My hope is our convo will be a warm hug, whether you're grieving or supporting someone who is. I'm Vivian. This is Happy to Be Here, and here's my conversation with Megan. I'm really excited to be on this episode of Happy to Be Here with Megan Roden Jarvis, who is actually a friend, also soon to be author Look of that. her new book, End of the Hour, <laughs> um, a therapist memoir. I love the cover. I think it's so vivid and it depicts so perfectly, I think, the journey that people will go through in this conversation as they're reading. Mm. And I think that you bring so much intel into what and life experience into what living with grief looks like. So I'm excited to introduce people to you, to your book, um, and to your journey. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's so nice to get to make a work hour out of. I know, each right? Other. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's perfect. It's always a perfect update, like to have like a little coffee date also that we share with a bunch of people. Coffee. I know, right? Mads is right next to me. Well, I want to start off literally with the book. Just tell me about the inspiration behind writing it and then the process of writing it and going back to those places of like your own heart and grief. Yeah, you know, so I always start out sort of by saying that I wasn't a person who ever imagined that I would write a book. That wasn't, there are a lot of authors that I know that are like, oh, I knew when I was in fourth grade, I wanted to be an author. My writing really comes from the experience of having traumatic grief, like having been traumatized by my loss. And so the writing process was just like, the grieving process for me, the mm. mechanism that worked most effectively. And, you know, you know this, I'm a trauma-informed therapist and I specialize in grief and loss. And I am trained in all kinds of talk therapies, but also in body-centered therapies that sort of move energy through the body. And in the teaching that I do with my clients and in my own experience, what you're always kind of looking for is what works for you. So it isn't that there's one right way. It's that, you know, there's a lot of different ways that we can use, you know, the examples of people who have gone before us and grieving, but we, but it's a little bit like Goldilocks. Like we still got to find our own chair mm -hmm. and that's what writing became for me. I started writing, you know, really early in the morning. Sometimes it was a letter to my parents, both of whom had died. And sometimes it was, I don't know, just sort of what my my feelings were that day. And I, I teach this writing class now, which is called Process to Product. And most oh, of, that. yeah, it's a, I didn't, again, it's like, I didn't mean to teach it, but when I started talking about what, what my journey towards publishing was there, I, people reach out and they're like, wait a second, I also want to tell a really difficult story mm -hmm. and the telling of the story is really hard. So one of the things that's really important for grievers to do is be able to have a narrative. Mm -hmm. And in early grief, that's really hard to do. But there's a lot of neuroscience around writing with a pen and writing on paper that 
couple of things happen. One is your brain trusts that you have recorded the information. So it is, it can help with ruminations, which were really the primary symptom of my traumatic grief was Mm -hmm. both visual and um, thought ruminations. And also you become, you become sort of, you know, I guess it's a little bit like carving something. You become more careful with your words. You Mm -hmm. become as you're sort of honing it down and in writing, you come to carry your narrative, right? So like, I couldn't even say my mom died for months, but eventually after writing so many different versions of it, I came to, you know, a sort of tagline of my experience, which is my mom died suddenly when I was on vacation with her and my kids and my dog. And then I suffered PTSD. Mm -hmm. And so then when you're able to do that without dysregulating yourself. So when I say I couldn't even say my mom died, what I mean is my throat would close. I'd start to sweat. I'd feel sick to my stomach. Mm -hmm. My body just couldn't do it. And the writing helped my body sort of come to know the reality, right? Like it just sort of dipped me in that hot water very slowly. You know, it's so interesting because I think so much of what we experience as grief or what we know as grief, especially if you haven't gone through it or if you are new to going through it, is that there's the feeling and then you learn sometimes much later on that there's the experience. There's the like living, there's the life, there's the what does this do to my body, which is do. Mm -hmm. And some of that you only know in retrospect when you're like a year in and you're like, I've lost 12 pounds and I've lost that's right a lot of hair and I'm like struggling to breathe or to say these things out loud and the connection between mind body and soul and like experience and life is such a lovely thing that you just depicted as well which is I do think that writing or putting your and it doesn't have to be writing in the sense of being a writer like you said you didn't start with that intention it was no. like I am writing to to find a thread that connects all of us together that I can have some sense of control over that I can like practice and repeat. And I think that I've, you know, both of us are in this grief space and I get hit with a lot of content across the board yeah. about like grief yeah. stuff. Yeah. And so often I, I most recently saw a video of someone who is like, I'm reading all of the books, trying to figure out how to do grief right. Yeah. And I just wanted to hug her I because know. I'm like, there is... No right way, no baby. book. Yeah. Like you're going to read all of them. And exactly like you said, it's going to be a Goldilocks effect of like, which one, which parts of what can yeah. I combine to make my own version of this? Yeah. But there is no one, there's no one thing. There's no one way. No. And you're not better at grief because you create something. You yeah. Know, that, that doesn't, oh my gosh, because yes. you make a book mm-hmm. doesn't mean like you won grief or if you started a foundation, you didn't win at grief. You know, I think it's useful even just to to go backwards a little bit and say that like grief is a reaction, an energetic reaction to loss. And so, you know, navigating the loss, which means your life is without, is hard enough. Just surviving Mm -hmm. that is hard enough. So like you don't have to build something or be something And in my experience, really, I was just writing so that I made sense to myself. I was really losing my tether to understanding who I was and what my life looked like when my mom died, which was surprising to me. And part of the reason 
when when I was approached to sort of take some of the writing and make it more public, mm-hmm. um, part of the reason I said yes to that is, you know, I have two master's degrees, 20 years of exp- of clinical experience with people who are dealing with the hardest levels of grief, the kind with very disruptive symptoms, the kind that get you diagnoses. Um, and I have like $100,000 in specialized training. And I still had to do exactly what you're describing. I still had to find my own Goldilocks chair. And so I knew all the things. Like I know mm-hmm. all the universals, you know, that exercise is really good for you and making sure that you that you get nutritious food into your system helps and that being able to bring your central nervous systems dysregulation down. Like I knew all the tools to do that and yet and still. I ended up after my mom died three months later, checking myself into the same inpatient facility where I sent my clients because I couldn't do it all by myself. So part of my message is it's much harder for some people than culture makes room for. It's much harder for everyone than what we are led to believe based on the limited you know, education that we have, most of which maybe comes from watching someone do it or maybe maybe TV and movies. And it's totally a natural process that we will all go through one day. So the terror about it, like imagine if every little girl out there was like terrified that they were going to get their period mm-hmm. or if there was total silence around it. And it was like, well, you're just going to have to figure it out when you get there. That's not what we do. We educate them and we say like, yeah, that might happen for Susan and not happen for you. But we just want you to know kind of like in general. So I have this, I was I was thinking when you were talking about sort of what, what grief looks like, I have this big, um, it's laminated like board in my office that has every word as a verb, I-N-G, that anyone has ever told me helped them in grief. Mm -hmm. So it's everything from like singing and sleeping and drinking and crying and gardening and jumping. And when people say, Megan, I have no idea how to do this. I just pull out this board (laughs) and I'm like... Whatever you see first that seems possible, let's try that. Because really, grieving is a little bit of a like Sherlock Holmes clues, looking for the clues. And it's like a it's like a process of hypothesis. You test the hypothesis. Oh my gosh, yes. And it's everything else other than grieving. Like it yes. is yeah, like it is grieving yeah. is like the umbrella. That's right. Yeah, you can say like this is this is caused by the loss and therefore by definition I am in grief and I am grieving. Yeah. But grieving is gardening. It's writing. It's like, so like, you're so right. Yeah. I mean, I've been thinking about it a lot um, because the world is a really dark, hard place right now. And it's hard to know how to show up in conversation for others because I, not in an ostrich way, but I notice, like if you think of sort of like a five as being neutral energy, 10, you're having a panic attack, zero, you're asleep. Just waking up in the world, I'm kind of at a six or a seven and Mm -hmm. I get unwell kind of at a seven or an eight. So it's really important for me to keep my central nervous system. And when I say my central nervous system, I mean that mind-body connection. So my brain and my spine, 
the message system, I need that to be as calm as possible, or I'll have PTSD symptoms recur. So I'll start to have some of the thoughts that it was my fault that my mother died. I'll start to see the images. So caring for my mental health in a politically explosive climate right now is really hard because I want to show up for the people that I love, right? So what ends up happening is I'm looking at what is my grieving practice. And so when we say grieving, most people think of like, oh, well, crying, Mm -hmm. But actually, my grieving practice has to be laughing Mm -hmm. because in order to cry, I have to make sure that my system also has joy inside it or we're not going to get to the average we need. Right. So like I am actively every day and I'm lucky right now because we have good weather where I am in D.C., like walking outside to see the beautiful red tree that is dropping its leaves outside the local school. Last night was my husband's birthday. We went to a we went to a concert that was um it's called Choir Choir Choir. It's like these two comedians who are I think they're brothers and they have the they break you into a choir in the audience. <laughs> and we sang Fleetwood Mac songs last night and it was oh hysterical gosh. and we were terrible and we laughed. But I felt that so to me that's grief work right which mm-hmm. is like if i'm going to let myself tip to the left into sadness i better be sure that i balance that out with joy and ridiculous because can you walk through that a little bit more for yeah. people who maybe have never heard even the way that you describe it is very new to me right like yeah. it's something that maybe i naturally do but that i don't intentionally package yeah so that's a great so you you may instinctively do this but what i what i always love is like oh look at that we have neuroscience and data to talk about what we instinctively do so there are this is this is the clinical part and my my memoir is not stuffed with this science right <laughs> i try to i try to talk about this very simply but there are two different parts of the brain The brain has a sympathetic nervous system, Mm -hmm. which is the fight and flight response. And that's your activative response. And so for people who run a little anxious, what that means is their sympathetic nervous system is a little overactive. Mm -hmm. And that's on the right side of the brain. The left side of the brain is the parasympathetic nervous system that we think of as rest and digest. And that is um, the mind-body connection that we talk about. That's the 10th cranial nerve, the vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. It's the nerve that develops at four months when babies learn to cry themselves to sleep. So it's the thing that will turn on if you get too distressed. And it soothes you. And so for some people, that will look like dissociation. They might fall asleep. They might feel warm. They might get distracted. But all of these parts of our body are meant to take care of us. And so in at its best, our mind and our body are flat, like two scales that are evenly set. If I'm too anxious, at some point, that vagus nerve is going to turn on and say, it's not good for you. And we will flip over, which is why when we talk about anxiety, we always ask people about depressive episodes, because if your anxiety gets really high, you will kick into depression. So anxiety, if we diagnose you with anxiety, you are also being diagnosed with depression. Depression can exist on its own. You can sort of skew towards depressed. So when I'm working with grievers, part of what I'm looking at is tell me about your system just typically. Just typically, how does it work for you, right? Like, do you run hot or cold? Do you eat three 
big meals a day or do you graze all day? Like what, what do you know about how it's normal for you? And so what I know is normal for me is I can get really anxious. I can get up to an eight. In fact, I still sometimes wake up in the middle of the night, like with all kinds of thoughts running through my head. So what I know is I have to balance that activated energy with cooling energy. Oh with my the gosh, calming I love this. energy, right? Mm-hmm. So, and one of the reasons it's important to talk about is that when you, again, because we don't get core education about grief anywhere, sometimes what we're looking at is like self-care mm-hmm. in, in like a standard magazine, the doctor's mm-hmm. office. And that self-care is going to say like, take a walk in nature, take mm-hmm. a lavender bath, take a nap, go to the movies with friends. None of those things is inherently bad. But let's take the example of take a lavender bath. If you're someone who already doesn't have a lot of energy in your system, taking a lavender bath is going to make you worse. So instead, what we want to say is, where are you on the scale of energy? Do you have too much or not enough? Mm. And then be really careful. And so what I'll tell you is I run a lot of energy. I have multiple motors. I do, you know, a lot of things. And so my practice of getting that energy to sort of calm down, cool off and get out of here, get out of my body is pretty diverse and and pretty intentional. And what I love when I'm on panels as a therapist, people always say like, you know, have you been, how, what training do you have to not take your work home with you? And this isn't fair, but it's true. Young therapists always say like, oh yes, we've been trained. And I say, what, what training did you have? I I never was trained in Mm -hmm. What I had was like, yeah, no, I'd work for three weeks, get sick because I had (laughs) too much of my client's energy in me, need to sleep for four days. And then I could kind of come back, but I'm fifth, I'm almost 50 now and my body doesn't bounce back that well. And I have three kids, a husband, a dog and multiple businesses. So I can't let that much in. And so I'm pretty vigilant. Like if I get activated, if I'm, if I can feel myself up to a six or a seven, I attend to a six and a seven right away. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting. So I do this thing um, on my Instagram stories regularly where I'm asking people like, where are you? One to five, six to 10. And it's like, again, like one of those things that I just said, like, I may not have had a name for that, but I think it's the same concept, right? And it's just like, once you figure out where you are, you can tend to that version of you. And that version of you may not respond well, exactly like you're saying. And I also think that there's new things that you discover as you live, right? As you live, as you grieve, as you are. I started going to acupuncture last December oh, and love acupuncture. it is, I didn't realize exactly what you were saying, which is like, I run real hot sometimes and yeah. I can be really zinging in my head and a lot happening all at the same time. And even when I was meditating, when I was taking my walks, all that stuff, there's still so much stimulus around yeah. me that like yeah. I'm receiving that. Yeah. At acupuncture for like, an hour or whatever, however long it is, I'm just laying there. And like, there's so much that's happening within my body that it allows that I don't have to do Yeah, that it does alone. That's right. And that for me was like mind blowing because it was this moment of deep awareness of everything else I am doing. Like I am actively exerting energy to do. And what I need is the exact opposite. I need to not exert any energy. (laughs) 
And so I think that having those moments only come exactly what we were talking about before. It only comes with living. Like you learn from your mistakes and you learn from your, okay, this worked in that situation, but it's not necessarily working right now. And I feel a little bit too zingy and hot for this one thing. And I think that that is why I love books like yours and grief books that are more from like the personal perspective. Like they're amazing books and amazing conversations you can listen to that will unpack the anatomy of grief. Like the anatomy of grief being one of those books. Yeah, like that's right. it's such that's a really right. great book. It is. That's right. But I think that it's also really wonderful to hear from people's experience. And I think what you were saying as well about the fact that you have all of this education, you have the credentials, you have the experience of sitting across from someone else who is experiencing the same thing. And yet you still needed to have your own journey with grief. Yeah. And what I ended up doing was writing all of the painful experiences. My my memoir depicts sort of three major events. One is a childhood death that happens when I'm nine, that really goes, um, it goes unremarked in my family. We never talk about it. And that probably is how we thought we were meant to take care of children in, you know, in that time period. And then my dad dies of cancer. And then shortly thereafter, my mom dies of, um, actually, we don't really know what my mom, a short illness. And when I was writing my book, there were a hundred thousand stories, right? Because it's your life. What I really wanted to pull out was my personal example of the stories that I heard from my clients. So there's a lot of Easter eggs in there, right? There are a lot of details where it's like, how many times have I heard someone telling me that they basically wanted to get divorced because they couldn't bear their partner? So I put all the fights with my husband in there who, you know, my husband is the best, but grief, grief is its own. Right? You just, there's cooker. a lot of anger. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of reactive anger because that right side of your brain is, you know, trying to protect you. Um, the, I heard so many stories of sort of like both the rushing to the medical care, mm-hmm. having to learn how to support someone with medical care, and then also the undoing. Uh, you know, sending the bed back, getting rid of the pills. So I put both of those in the book. So it's a little bit of love letter to like my parents, my family, my Mm -hmm. experience, but very much the stories that I had heard over and over and over again, because I think primarily what we want is validation. We want a hundred percent a core. And, and, you know, when I came out of treatment, I read like 188 books on grief and loss. When my mom died, I read when my dad died, I couldn't read. And I would throw books across the room. I felt totally personally betrayed. I expect people to throw my book across the room because we're so vulnerable when we're reading these books, but it's also why it's so important to write them. It's so important. And, And at the crux of why I wrote this book is that my grief is very quickly an illness, whereas most grief actually isn't. But we have, including clinicians, nobody has any idea how to tell the difference. And so what I really wanted to show people reading it is what does it look and feel like when your mind sort of corrupts and your body starts to get ill? What does it look like? Mm-hmm. And if you feel like you relate to that, maybe we should go talk to someone about mm-hmm. it. There's plenty of grief that I think is unbearably hard, 
but is not going to require medication or a doctor. It's going to require support and love and care and time. And you'll, you know, have to be, as we were describing, the like sort of scientists. You're going to have to hypothesize about what would be helpful. You know, when you're talking about acupuncture, I was sort of smiling because I had a client who was like, my sister-in-law did acupuncture after her dad died. I'm going to go. She had like the worst panic attack of her life Mm -hmm. in the room. And it's like, okay, that's great data. Let's not do that stuff. Let's do things that are outside Mm -hmm. in wide open spaces. Let's do that instead. But you do have to have like a little bit of a curious and forgiving and compassionate mind. And there's so little of that in grief and loss. There's so little of it in bereavement, you know, people, people are given three days off to, you know, grieve their child that that signals to folks that we don't really take this process seriously. There's an expectation that they're everything you try will be the right thing. And right. That therefore, there's no room for it not being the right thing. Right. And that. And that if it is, if it doesn't quote unquote work, you're wrong. That's it's right. Not the thing. You're failing. You're failing yeah. at grief because, right. So if Vivian says that she did acupuncture and that helped her, acupuncture must therefore be a good thing for grief. And, you know, this is going to sound nuts, but it's what I say a lot. I think grief is a little bit more like sex, which is like absolutely have all the conversations with everyone you know about sex in as much detail as possible because that is going to open up your imagination yeah. in a way your curiosity that will, is going to go all of it uh-huh do that as much as possible and then you're still going to have to figure out what works for you <laughs> yep with the people that you're having sex with and it is going to be completely different Yes. The first time from the 20th time. Right. So I I hesitate to say it because people are like, grief is like sex, but it is. It's unbelievably personal. It's really intimate. Mm -hmm. You can go from feeling deeply connected and deeply seen and deeply heard to kind of in danger Mm -hmm. in, in, uh, you know, the span of a second. You can get dysregulated really quickly. Mm -hmm. But what I am always saying to grievers, and I, I have this model that I have built, which is called the mentor method, which is just like, look, there are six main categories that the that the grief world tells us need to kind of be attended to. Let's let you go figure out this one. Let's go figure out this one. Let's go. And then you're going to build your little buffet of what works for you. And then you know what? The next death that you experience or the next tremendous loss, because we we grieve any loss. It doesn't have to be a death. The next time you're grieving, what you'll feel is the belief that you can create the process. And you'll probably go back to some of the things that helped you before, but they may not work this time around. What are those six things or those six buckets for people who maybe don't know? So the mentor method, as I describe it, one of the the very first one is mindfulness. So it is beginning with that mind-body connection because you can't really have wisdom, develop any wisdom if you're not inside your system saying, where is the energy? How does it need to be attended to? And so what we what we do with that is we say, look, that doesn't mean sitting cross-legged. And there's a million ways to enhance your connection to your body. For some people, going to a yoga class brings them right inside their body. For other people, a yoga class creates panic. So the first section that we talk about is really, really diverse. And we say, go forth and figure it out. 
The second one, E, is energy. So understanding what we were talking about, are you in high energy? Mm-hmm. In the, and, and, and the reason that's really important, I should have said this a minute ago, and I do talk about this in my memoir, is that fight and flight, if we're able to get out of our state of distress with fight and flight, like that's great. If we end up in freeze, freeze is where trauma happens. Freeze is where it like tattoos in the hard stuff and where we maybe start to feel like, oh, this is who I am instead of this is what happened to me. So with grief, there isn't really anything to fight. And there isn't really with, with you know, with the death, there isn't really an, anywhere to flee to. The maybe people do those things for a second. They run away or they say, you know, shut up. You're not you're lying to me. But very quickly, we are in like the stunned realization of this is the world now. And we need support in that space. So in the E is understanding where your energy is. Are you in fight and flight? Are you in in freeze? And then how are we going to support you? And so then N is about nourishing. And some of that is food, but nourishing more like what helps move that energy to balance you. So for me, music is really powerful. But for you, it might be hiking. Or for you, it might be spending time with friends. And then T is translate. Start writing it down, using your words. Building your own little grief dictionary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, your vocabulary so that you understand yourself well. I mean, one of the things we talk about in the translate is that, um, you know, people think emotions and feelings are the same. And they're not. Emotions are subconscious and they just sort of like energetically fly through your system. Feelings are conscious and they're what we assign the value to our emotions, but we don't do that very well. So I might tell you that I'm angry because that's what that felt like to me. But really, if we were to sit and pause in it, I'm actually sad. Mm -hmm. So the translating, the sort of getting to the nitty gritty of the words, because that's how we communicate outwards, first to ourselves and then to everybody else. And then O is outdoors. There is so much neuroscience about getting outside, getting out into nature, being where you can hear or see water, that it regulates the nervous system. And then R is rest. You know, sleep is one of the things that's really difficult for people. Um... And when you go and see a doctor, they say like, well, you know, you really need to get more sleep. It's like, yeah, that's so, that's <laughs> you so and I awesome. both agree. <laughs> right. So, so this is when people are really having a hard time. Mm-hmm. How can we create a practice of rest? What would rest look like again? So that that energy in the body is able to kind of, even if you're not sleeping as much, you are allowing space where sleep could come and find you. So those are the six categories. And you do, again, I don't use the mentor method in my in my book, but I do describe my experience with all with being dysregulated by every one of those things. Can you speak a little bit more about what people can expect when they pick up the book? I think yeah. we were talking right before I hit record about how it comes out November 14th, which is right before the holiday season really kicks in. So I think it's a really great read for someone who's going to be coping 
through that season um, for many reasons. And we'll dive in a little bit more on some tips that you can take away for the holidays and grief. But I would love for you, people to know just exactly what they're getting when they're when they're picking up your book, which again, for the video. <laughs> yeah, there it is. It's always a thrill to see it. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny because I was signing books at a book conference recently next to somebody who writes really like interesting mm-hmm. sort of scientific thrillers. And we were chatting and he was like, we should do a book event. And I was like, <laughs> I don't think people who read your book. Are gonna read, are, I don't think we have a shared, you know, audience. Audience. So, so I think what you, I think there's two things. One is it's just a highly personal story from a daughter about the experience of losing her parents. And it's two very different things because my parents were very different. I had very different relationships with them. Um, I think it's a really female story because there's a lot of, uh, I talk a lot about the codependence that exists, the caretaking Mm -hmm. that I do, um, and how that has been sort of stitched into my system and how I have to unwind that, that, that actually caretaking for people when you need to keep your care for yourself is not actually caretaking. It's something else. So I talk, I, I write a lot about that, but really what I, what I'm hoping people will find is hope inside the book. You know, we do this incredibly hard thing. All of us, all of us, every single human out there will experience profound loss and the, you know, the survival rate of it is very high. But part of how I talk about my childhood loss is to let people know, you know, we get splinters left inside our system. You know, they stick in there and they can come out almost like an illness or an infection, which is certainly what happened with me. And there isn't one right way to grieve, right? Like I didn't fail at grieving when I was nine and I didn't fail grieving my dad. It's just by the time my mom died, the way I needed to figure out a grief practice was it, it took up much more of the pie chart of my life. And so I'm hoping people are going to find it hopeful. I'm hoping they're going to see um, that it's hard. And whether you're grieving or supporting someone who's grieving, you know, I'm hoping that the honesty in which I tell the story again, because if anyone should have been able to circumnavigate the whole falling apart experience, I certainly had the education and the experience that one would imagine be like, oh, it's going to be a breeze for you. And it wasn't and it still isn't. I hope to anyone who picks it up knows that or anyone listening knows that it isn't a book for the beginning of grief. It isn't a book five years into grief. It is a book for any point you are in in the grief process. I lost my mom 20 years ago and... There, I mean, I only started acupuncture in December. Like that was a new discovery of how I can cope with my grief. And that's like 20 years in. Yeah. And so I think that the more you read these stories and you read your book, depending on where you are in your grief with different eyes. And you can always continue to pick it up or pick up any grief book and realize I see this differently now because I see myself differently or my grief differently. And there's so much value in that. Yeah. I really agree with that. And I think there are some books. I read The Secret Garden to one of my kids recently, and I was like weeping through that story. I've read it a couple of times as a teacher. I read it as a child. I do think there are different ways. And and it's such a great way of describing grief that like as you develop and as you 
continue to live through life, you miss them differently. You know, I don't long for my mom in the way that I did. She died four and a half years ago. I don't like long for her. I just miss her, right? So longing for her is like, God, I wish she was here. I need I need to hear her voice. Instead, it's like, oh, God, all this stuff is going on. I, mm-hmm. She would have loved this. I would, I... And I didn't know to think about that. And I am constantly, my expectation for myself is that I will constantly be learning about, right, about this part of me. It's almost like I grew an arm or something like Mm -hmm. in this process, right? Like I am constantly learning about myself as a griever, kind of the way I'm learning about myself as a parent. As my kids get older, I notice that like, gosh, I have less patience with teenagers than I did with little kids. But I... I imagine it's going to continue to develop. And one of the things I love about books is picking the ones that have been poignant for me back up. Some I've been like, I don't know why I thought this was such so powerful. I'm not in that same space. But many of them, um, many of them feel like they're telling this version of me. Something completely different. Yeah. 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 The one book I always pick up, it isn't a grief book, but I think it, I read it at a time where I needed to remember that the universe wasn't against me. So I think that's why it left such a mark is Paulo Coelho's The Alchemist. I read it for the first time when I was like 13 or 14. I was starting high school. Um, It was the first quote unquote big thing that happened after my mom died. And I, I read that book every year. It, It takes me back to that 13 year old self, but it also takes me back to like, what I can get from it now as a 30-year-old woman. Um, And I think that that journey we go on with grief and life is the same. Like you pick up a different book every single time. And I think as we think about the holiday season, that's another easy place to feel like you're failing because maybe last year was easier. Maybe last year was harder and this year isn't easy. I think sometimes we get upset as upset when it's super easy as when it is really hard because you're like, shouldn't this be harder? And so for anyone listening who's navigating or about to navigate maybe whatever year it is of them having missed or them missing someone in, during Thanksgiving or during the winter holidays, what are some things that you would encourage them to think about or to hold? So so the first thing that I would say is go to that T in the, in the mentor method mm-hmm. and think about translating what you believe the holidays are about right? Is, is there a Norman Rockwell, everyone around the table, we're all supposed to be happy because I mean, it has some Buddhism in it, but we will, there will always be pain if we have expectations that we cannot live up to. And for people who are without loved ones on the holidays, we should expect some pain, mm-hmm. right? We should expect some longing, We should anticipate that. We're not failing at the holidays because we feel it. Mm -hmm. That actually is really good emotional math. And so what I would then do when I I accept that, when I say, oh, I'm definitely going to miss my mom over Christmas. I mean, I have all these like Christmas ornaments that my mother gave me. There are going to be some tears. Then pick some people that you can talk to about that. 
so that you're clear to have it validated, right? Because a lot of what we do is we're like, whoa, I don't want to bum out other people on the holidays. Okay, mm-hmm. don't bum out everyone on the holidays. Yeah. But <laughs> just bum some, out four. <laughs> just bum out, there, I have some people in my life and, and, you know, also some strangers, some people who will, I mean, when we started, you said, are you excited about the book? And then I said, yes, and. And I said, also, I'm anxious about some things because for me, it's really important to tell the truth, not necessarily tell what people want to hear. So translating during the holidays, translate, what are my own expectations? Can I bring them more towards reality? The holidays are just the holidays. Let myself miss my person. That is reasonable. And then also people are going to forget that and they're going to miss that because it's been 20 years since my mom died. So I, it's my responsibility to translate myself outward and to just say, hey, you know what? Every one of these holidays since my mom died has these little, you know, bittersweet moments to it. And I do think Colin Campbell, um, who lost his son and daughter, Ruby and Hart, in a terrible car accident, talks about ritual. And I swear to God, he's like an expert at it. So um, I think the idea of having some kind of ritual for yourself or for someone else. And so for me, it's how I how I decorate my my house for Christmas. My mom loved Christmas, so I have a bunch of her ornaments. And so I have a ritual where when people come in and they say, oh, I, you know, your house is decorated for Christmas. I say, can I show you the ones that were my mom's? And that's it. It's real small. Like, I'm not a great cook. We had all kinds of other things during the holidays. I had five brothers and sisters. I can't replicate all that stuff. But I have a very small, like, let me show you these angels. I love showing people the angels because I don't actually really love them. (laughs) They're not really like my favorite thing, but my mother loved them. She gifted Mm -hmm. them to me. I put them out every year. And that's what I say. These were my mother gave me these. She really loved them. They're from Germany. She loved to collect things. So having a little ritual to create a little bit of space. And then the last thing that I would say is we grieve every day. And so set a clock. From, and maybe even do it in the evening because our bodies naturally get a little anxious in the evening when the sun goes down just biologically. So let, let's say at six o'clock, you're going to set the clock for seven minutes and just actively grieve for seven minutes. You can write it down in a journal. And then I think what sometimes happens is you give yourself permission to not maybe maybe even just push off the pain when you feel it all over the day and say, well, you know, I do I this can, all the time. Mm-hmm. I'll do it at six o'clock. I'll do it from six to six oh seven. And listen, if you want to do it from six to nine thirty, fine. But I think sometimes people's systems get a little intimidated. And so just see how much seven minutes do you need more time than that? And it's everything that you it's such a full circle moment and a way to bring back a conversation as we start to wrap it up. But it's like everything you've talked about, right? I I do that too. I, I set time aside on the calendar because I think it just makes it easier. It also sets the expectation of, I know that I am going to be griefy. Therefore, I'm going to let myself be griefy. I'm going to write it in like I'm writing dinner. And it goes back to what you were saying, all those verbs, like what does grief look like tonight, right? Is it setting up the Christmas tree in a specific way? Because it reminds you of someone. Is it doing whatever it needs to be? Um, giving yourself that sense of permission feels weird. I don't think it ever stops feeling weird, but I do think that it It gets a lot easier to do when you realize that by doing that, 
you stop setting the expectations so high. And then you also realize like what, this is my like silver lining take on the holidays. At least I know some of the key days Yes. Like in, in the winter. Yes, you come, you come to know. Yeah. Right? That's exactly, you come mm-hmm. to, you know, my mother's birthday is also right around Thanksgiving. You know, there are other sort of religious traditional days that she used to celebrate. I'll, I'll say this because I also, so in the world of pain management or in asthma or in recovery, one of the things that you do in those worlds is you have a graph, you count. I also think it could be useful for people heading into days that have, it might not be just that you're grieving that your grandmother died. You might be grieving that you didn't get a promotion or that you didn't get a proposal or that you're not in the house that you want to be living in or that your body has some pain. I think sometimes literally allowing yourself to count how many times you have that thought or feeling. So I have my mom's initials tattooed on my <laughs> on my wrist and I will kiss kiss her my wrist when I think about her. And and then I'll count it. I I have ways of doing that. I have a little dish of beads and sometimes I'll say to my husband like god I thought about her 42 times today. Mm. And maybe that's all I say about it, but it's a way of really deeply validating, not that I'm doing something wrong, just that it exists, that the grief exists. It's such a good, I hope someone takes that and does it. And it's really funny. I have 13 on my wrist for my mom and my mom's writing um, because I believe in signs. And when Mm. I was 13, I started seeing 13 a lot, like, and it just felt like something attached to her. Um, but I'm going to start counting because I think that there are some days I notice and some days I'd like, I don't look at my wrist and it's fine. But I think that that's like another way to translate your grief out to yourself and to someone else just to realize, oh, that's why I'm maybe in a mood that I'm in right now. And it's a simple way. Like I, my best friend and my sister are also part of my like support network. And so sometimes I'll just text them, you know, like, it's a grief day or it's a griefy day. Yeah. And then one of them might text back how many times because they'll know that like I probably and, you know, 34 times like I that maybe doesn't even mean anything inherently to them. But I'm just to let you like I thought of her. I missed mm-hmm. her 34 times today. I love the permissions that you're also allowing. And, and you've mentioned this a couple of times in our conversation that other people don't actually have to know how to respond to anything yeah. to hold it. No. They can they can hold the ball and still not know how to throw it. And, yeah. and that's an okay thing for you to allow as well as like the griever. And anytime you do your grief out loud, you are helping those people learn. You know, I have a clinical book that's coming out next year. And, you know, it's like, hey, here's why you have brain fog. And like, here's an example of a client I, I worked with who had brain fog. And then it's like, here are some suggestions for you as the griever. Here are some suggestions for you as the supporter. I love that. Because not only are you growing into grief, the people around you are trying to grow into understanding how to show up for you and probably their own grief too. And it's hard. So being able to just say 34 times today, you thought it was a Tuesday, but I'm telling you, it was a heavy, heavy day. Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe all you end up saying about it was is like, do you know why? Was there mm-hmm. something? It's like, oh, well, I, you know, I watched her favorite movie. Like, oh, it's hard. It takes a while too. I think that that's something 
my boyfriend over the years has truly learned how to be more comfortable around yeah. dimensions of my mom and my grandma. And I think this probably happened a few years ago now, but I think the the day that him and I both realized that that was something that he had grown more comfortable with was a, it's probably the holiday season or something. And I said something or I did something that annoyed him in a funny way. And he looked up at like the ceiling and the heavens and he's like, look at what you guys left me with here. And I Aww. just started cracking up <laughs> so and beautiful. he started cracking up and I was like, oh, okay. Like that's, We're in it. there's nothing. Yeah. There's nothing there that needs to, he didn't have to make me feel better about whatever, or I didn't have to like, it was just a funny moment that if my mom would have been across the counter from us, he would have said the same exact thing. And there's something yeah. really lovely about about that, about a moment where it just feels so normal. Yeah. That you're not expecting anything one way or the other. And that ability to just be with someone mm-hmm. while they have their feelings and not have to shift or change or pathologize or fix goes a really long way across your whole life. I yeah. Mean, I will tell you as the mother of three teenagers... When they come home and they say, like, somebody texted somebody a picture about something that hurt my feelings. And listen, I didn't have any texting going on when I was a teenager. (laughs) I have nothing I can offer, really Mm -hmm. genuinely, except to say, that sounds like that was awful. God, that sounds like that was awful. Do you want to sit? Should we take a walk? Do you want to be alone? Do you want me to come? But, you know, the reality is there are a lot of things in life that are hard that we have to be able to bear our people going, you know, through. And and again, what I really want my book to do is convey to people that there is hope that you will be able to do and go through this very natural process. But I do think you have to infuse confidence right that's what the coaching component is that's what unconditional love is I think which is I am looking at you as a human and I believe you can do this I get that you can't believe it right now because you can't see your way past 20 minutes ahead and that for you your partner your mother whomever it is who's no longer here makes your life so cloudy but I'm going to stand over here like a tether to your tent pole and tell you, I can see it. There will be an after and you will grow into it and I'll stick around. But it's hard. <laughs> Megan, that is such a lovely way to end the conversation. Mm. End of the hour out November 14th, which is I think will be right when this episode comes out anyway. Um I could keep talking for hours. Thank it you, is Vivian. such a lovely conversation. Oh, this was just such a lovely excuse to see your smile <laughs> and to talk <laughs> about our experiences. You. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, so you can look me up under, you know, it's easiest because Reardon is a weird spelling. It's easiest to look up Grief is My Side Hustle, which is my podcast. Perfect. If you Google that, it'll take you to my website. You can contact me, follow me on Instagram. I have a team of people who answer my emails, but honestly, I read them all. So mm. if you need me, just reach out. Perfect. I'll make sure to include all of that in the show notes as well. Thank you so much, Megan. Thank you. I'm adding all of Megan's links and social handles to our show notes. Her book, End of the Hour, is out this week. On our end, don't forget to rate, review, or share. Happy to be here with a friend if you can. It's how we can continue to grow our community. See you next week.